Amen. Our text this morning is in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. It says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You know, every weekend we come here to church and we, we read this book and we study this book together. And, and this book is the most widely read, most widely sold, best-selling book of all time. And, um, and it's, it's, it's really essential. In fact, the, we get the word Bible from the Greek word book, Biblia, and, um, and just all it just means is book. But book is a little bit misleading because it, it's probably better understood as a library. Even though it's in a so- single volume, this is a library of 66 different books written by over 40 different authors on three different continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa. It's written in three different languages, originally was written by, in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. It's written by 40 different authors that come from all kinds of different backgrounds and span, like I said, almost 1,500 years. It was written by prophets and shepherds and kings, doctors, fishermen, tent makers, and more. And it addresses thousands of topics and has thousands of themes. And despite the vast time across which it was written and the vast different cultural context of its, of its writers and the different various um, uh, current situations that were going on, if you are a careful st- a student of the scriptures, or even if you're just a casual student of scriptures, as you read it, one of the things that will stand out to you is that there's a remarkable unity in the scriptures. In fact, across all of the writing, it's obvious that there's an overshadowing of a divine author. And in fact, while it was written by all these different people over all this different time, it was actually God who was producing this work. The harmony comes from this fact that it's not just, it's not just a simple collection of religious texts written by um, spiritual men, but this is actually the holy and infallible word of God himself. That's why I read in 2 Timothy 3.16, our text, it says, all scripture is inspired by God. That word inspired might not really do the Greek word justice. When we think about inspired, we think about you see a painting or you see something that's, that's interesting. That's not exactly what it means. The ESV translated, translates that as breathed out by God. The, the Greek word there that, that means breathed out by God or means inspired by God is the Greek word theanustos, theanustos. And it means that it's, it's the same rendering of when God made man and he breathed life into him. In, the, in, the, in Genesis chapter one, and so, or Genesis chapter two. And so here we have that all scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So the man of God may be adequate, equipped in every good work. You see, if you don't understand what it is that we have in our hands and what it is we're actually reading, you're liable to make some really bad mistakes in how you approach this book. In fact, you're, you're, there are many people today, they do that, is, is when they come to the Bible They sit down on the seat where the judge sits and they read the Bible and they decide, what do I think of that? Do I agree with that or do I disagree with that? Does that ring ring as true to me or is untrue? So you get people that will will say things, silly things like, well, I don't agree with that part. You know, Paul just wrote that because he was living in in a different time, kind of a backwards time, and today we know better. This verse doesn't sit right with me, so I don't follow that part of the Bible. This, this part of the Bible contradicts my experience in life, and so I don't think that it's valid. All of that undermines the reality of what the Scripture actually is. If this is the Word of God, then you don't sit on the seat where the judge sits and read this book. In fact, God sits on the judge seat, and this Word judges you. 
And the, the way that we should approach this, the word of God, is to recognize that it's the revealed word of God. It's preserved by God himself. And therefore, we must receive it as his word and we must obey his instruction, his commandments. In a simple terms, the Bible is the truth with a capital T. It is the foundation by which all other truths come out of. It claims total authority over all of life and over all of reality. And it's for this exact reason that the Bible sits in the center of a great battle that's going on today. The authority in the proper place of the Bible is challenged on all fronts. There's atheists who would say, I don't believe that book. I don't think that it's true. There's other religions that would say, we have our own spiritual text. We believe in the Quran, or we believe in the, the Bhagavad Gita, or we believe in, in, in the Tao Te Ching, or whatever. There's, there's professors that sit in colleges that, that are called textual critics, and they'll go through. I, I had a class at Grossmont where I had a humanities class, and, and she went through uh, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and said, well, this part was likely written by a priest, and this part was likely written by a Levite, and this part was... And she, she would try to break down the Bible and saying that, that these sound like different kinds of roles, and so um, that they must have been written by different people and, and all this different times. There's a... There's arguments and attacks on scripture that are not just coming from outside the churches. There's arguments and attacks that are coming from inside the church of Christians who are willing to go. In fact, many of the attacks inside the church are coming from what we call Christian colleges or Christian universities or sometimes seminaries by people who oftentimes long ago have given up any belief in the validity of the scriptures. Pastor Mark and Dave's, their testimony is when, when they went away to seminary, they went to a seminary where, where the professors didn't even believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is not actually uncommon. This, this is really important for us to understand that, that um, you know, for the last, um, uh, the, first off, it's not new, okay? So, so if, if, in fact, if you go back to the very beginning, if you go back to Genesis chapter three, the very first sin, you find the enemy's tactic is to undermine the word of God. Genesis 3.1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God really said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. You notice as he's trying to tempt her, he starts off by first undermining the word of God. The word of God is, is God's protection for us. It's God's gift for us. And the enemy knows that if he can get around that, if he can sow seeds of doubt, has God really said? And then he, he changes what God really said. So she said, no. But, but he, he's planting that seed of doubt in Eve, and that's still going on today. In fact, over the last 150 years, we have uh, what's, what's, these are theological terms, but inside the church, neo-orthodoxy, liberalism, higher criticism, um, uh, a lot of German dead guys who began to undermine and question what the Bible really teaches. Is this really the word of God? And, and uh, in, in 1940s, uh, Fuller Seminary was started here in Southern California. It was really the preeminent evangelical seminary, but right away, Many of the professors, they had to sign a, a, a faith statement that said that they believe in the, the plenary inerrancy of the scriptures. We'll talk about what that means in just a minute. But over time, many of the professors began to question it, and, and, and they began to get squishy, and they began to slide back and pull back from inerrancy so that they actually changed their, mission, their, their belief system, um, and, and they, they changed it to, to lighten it up. And several, several Christians, several theologians saw what was happening. And so in 1978, they, they, they came to Chicago, Illinois, and they, they wrote out what was a statement called the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy. 
And so since 1970, we've had this document that explains clearly what do Christian, conservative, evangelical Christians really believe about the Bible? And you would have thought that maybe the, the controversy would have stopped there, but it hasn't. In fact, it's continued to grow, and it's, 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 it's growing like wildfire in the church today. So much so that as, as you know, people have left Foothills and they go to other churches, one of the things they ask us to do is they say, man, I, I've loved my time at Foothills. I have to move somewhere else. Will you help me find a good church in my in my area. And, and so as we, as we look at other churches, all of us do the exact same thing. The very first thing we do is on their website, we'll go to their statement of faith. And the, the most important thing we're looking for in their statement of faith is what do they say about the Bible? What do they teach about the Bible? Because the truth is it hasn't always been this way, but you can know 90% of what you need to know about whether a church is a good church or a bad church by what they believe about the Bible. So I want to look at our church. I want to look at our statement of faith. If you go to foothillschurch.com.org and you scroll on what we believe, who we are, what we believe, you'll find our FCC statement of faith. And this is what, there's one sentence about the Bible. It says this, we believe the whole Bible is the word of God without error and the only unfailing rule for proper living in every area of life, both personal and public. This morning, I want to make it clear what we're saying, and I want to, I want to um, break that down into two different parts. I want to take the first part that says, we believe the whole Bible is the word of God without error. We want to clearly plant our flag with those conservative Christians who say, we believe in the plenary, inerrant, infallible, sufficient word of God. We want to make it clear where we stand so there's no question, there's no squishiness. We're with them. Plenary inspiration means that, the, the word plenary means whole, it means we believe in the whole Bible, the New Testament, the Old Testament. We believe in every single verse. We believe that all of it is the inspired word of God. Now, there's some Christians who want to say, that um, sometimes you'll hear about lead redder, red letter Christians. And those are Christians who want to put a special focus on what Jesus said. What, what, we want to, what we believe about the Bible is that Jesus said all of it. Jesus is the author of all of it. And so we can't, in, um, in the, the 1980s and 90s, there was something called the Jesus Seminar. And there was these, these people, these liberal theologians that came together and they say, well, um, we think Jesus probably said that, but we, didn't, we, don't think that, we don't believe that he said that. And they went through the Bible and they tried to parse out what they thought was, was true and what they thought was false. And at the end, they came up with like, I think it was like seven sentences that they were pretty sure Jesus said. And then the rest of it was like, ah, uh, we're not really sure. That's not us. We believe that, that not only did, did the, the, the Gospels accurately accord the words of Jesus, we believe the whole Bible represents God's thoughts and Jesus' words. We believe that the Bible in both its New Testament and Old Testament is, is authentic, it is inerrant, and it is authoritative. We believe the Bible is sufficient to teach everything that we need to know about God and what we need to know to be saved. We believe the Bible is the final authority on all matters that it addresses and all of our teaching all of our authority, all of our spiritual experiences, all of our prophecies, all of our words of knowledge, everything are all subservient to the Bible. If it doesn't align with the Bible, we reject it. The Bible is our final authority on all of those things. I want to give you this morning, I want to give you eight reasons why we have such confidence in the reliability of this book. Why we believe with such confidence we can say this is the final rule and authority. I'm going to give you eight reasons. We could give more. This morning, we're just going to give eight. I want to say at the outset that eight of the, 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 these eight, all of them we're just going to go over briefly. It could easily be an entire semester course at a seminary, each one of these, but we're just going to go through them quickly. 
The first is this, fulfilled prophecy. The Bible is full of fulfilled prophecies. Things that were written down hundreds and thousands of years prior to the events actually taking place. In fact, the best example of this is that in the Old Testament, there are over 300 prophecies about Jesus that Jesus fulfilled in his life. That's such an astonishing number. I want to just um, um, make it, this, this is such a strong evidence. I want to make it clear. There's a, um, a several uh, college classes that their professors asked them to sit down and try to identify. They, they identified just eight of those prophecies, okay? Eight of those specific prophecies. Prophecies like Jesus would be born in, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Then the Messiah would be crucified, okay? These specific ones that apply to his life. They just took eight and they said, what is the statistical probability of that being fulfilled by one person? And they, they did all the math and they, 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 they built the models and they submitted it to the American Scientific Association to review their math. And they, they came back as, yeah, this is valid, this is correct. And they said the chance of one person fulfilling just eight of these prophecies is one to the 17th power. Now, I don't know what that number is. It's one, it's, it's 10 with 17 zeros after it. Not one to the 17th, 10 to the 17th power. Math nerds are like, that's one. Um, <laughs> It's 10 to the 17th power, okay? Now, just to give you a, a, an idea of what that is, if, if you covered the state of Texas with silver dollars, silver half dollars, and you marked, you, it would, to, to cover it, one to the 17th power would be two feet deep of silver dollars in the entire state of Texas, okay? If you marked one of them and you blindfolded someone and you asked them to go into the state of Texas, walk around and pick up one, the chances of one person fulfilling just those eight prophecies that Jesus fulfilled is the likelihood of that blindfolded person picking up your one marked silver dollar. It just isn't going to happen. It statistically is impossible. In fact, the evidence is so strong that in the earlier parts of, of the, the, the late 19th century, early 20th century, critics of the Bible would say, well, what must have happened is that people must have gone back and revised those texts in order to insert those prophecies that they, could, that they knew were fulfilled by Jesus. And that was actually a, a credible claim. People struggled to try to answer that because, yeah, I guess that's possible. Well, it was possible until 1956. In 1956 was the final year that the Qumran caves were excavated and the Dead Sea Scrolls were taken out. Okay, now, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the story is that, that in, the 19, in 1948, I think, a Bedouin shepherd was out in the, rock, was out in the wilderness of Judea, the desert, throwing rocks. And he's thrown him in this cave. And in one of the caves, he heard something like pottery break. And so he went in to investigate and he found these, these big vases and inside were these big scrolls. And so he tore off part of the parchment and he was, he was showing it to his friend. His friend said, I bet we could sell that. And so they went uh, just several miles. This is, this is during um, the, the Israel wasn't unified yet. And so it was the Palestinian area and the, the Israeli area. And they, they found an antiquities dealer and they sold him this little parchment. The antiquities dealer realized that what he held in his hands was part of the book of Isaiah. And so he paid him for it. He was so excited about it. Well, this actually started a thing where the, the shepherds went back and tore off more, and they just kept doing this for a couple of years. Until somebody finally said, what? We got to stop this. This is incredible. And what they did is they ended up going and excavating several different caves. And what they found was they had all of these undisturbed um, uh, pottery vases that had been, um, that had been, had all these scriptures and all these old ma ancient manuscripts that had been preserved for almost 2,000 years. 
And as they excavated it, what they found is they found the entire Old Testament, all the books of the Old Testament were represented there in the, in the manuscripts they found, except for the book of Esther. And what they found was that as, as they studied them, as they translated them, that exactly what they have in the Old Testament, in those, in those books that haven't been touched for 2,000 years, is exactly what we have in our Old Testament here. It, was, it, it, it had been preserved that whole time. And so we have confidence that it hasn't been changed, that it's identical, and that those really were fulfilled prophecies. Listen, if that was the only evidence we have, that would be strong enough for us to take this as the word of God. It's it's not the only evidence that we have. The second thing is this, the unity of the scriptures. This is the proof I was talking about in the beginning of of my message, that that over 40 authors, over 1,500 years, and yet this book is internally consistent. It's accurate on everything it speaks on. There are no contradictions in it. If you ever talk to a Muslim, one of the things they'll say about the Quran is that the evidence they'll give you for why you should accept the Quran is that the Quran has internal unity. The Quran was written by, by one author, Zaid ben Thabit. It wasn't written by Muhammad. It was, it was actually Muhammad's scribe, and he wrote down what, uh, supposedly what Muhammad was saying over a course of about 20 years. Listen, it's not that impressive to have internal unity of a book written by one person over a short time span. But compare that to the Bible of 40 different authors written over 1,500 years. That's a remarkable evidence about the reliability and the trustworthiness of the Bible. The third thing is this, is the Bible is honest. The Bible is not a hero's epic. The Bible doesn't take its heroes and and, and show that they live valorous and and virtuous lives. But the the Bible is honest about the failings of our heroes. You, look, you go back and look at the, what the Bible teaches about the patriarchs. It shows them warts and all, sins and, and failings and, and um, shortcomings. It talks about Abraham's cowardice and Moses' violence and Jacob's lies and David's lusts and Peter's unbelief and so on. It doesn't read like, like a, a, an epic tale of a hero. It reads like real people, failed people obeying God. The fourth thing, and I wish we had more time for this, but is the archaeological evidence. There's external evidence all over the place that, that what the Bible teaches, the Bible makes claims about historical places and historical events and scientific truths that have long been forgotten, covered over by centuries of time, unknowable to the early authors, and then later revealed by archaeologists and historians and scientists. There have been times where the, the people would say, well, look, the Bible's not true because, look, it says there's a city here and, and we've dug and we haven't found the city. And then they dig a little further and they find the city. I mean, that's happened over and over again where there's, there's different evidences. There's a, um, uh, I don't have time to go into it, but there's some great stuff. If, you, if you're interested, it, there's a lot of it online. The fifth thing is this, is that the Bible contains eyewitness accounts of supernatural events. The, the, the reason this is important is, is in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul is saying, look, if you don't believe me what I'm saying about the resurrection of Jesus... Jesus appeared to over 500 people. Most of them are still alive. You can go and ask them. He was appealing in his own time saying, listen, this is not just my testimony. There are hundreds of people who witness with their own eyes the risen Christ. Go and ask them. 2 Peter 1, the Apostle, Paul, the Apostle Peter reading, writing says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, 
Such an evidence was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He's saying on the Mount of Transfiguration, when, when, when the heavens opened, when Jesus shined like the sun, we heard the audible voice of God say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. We were there, we, were, we witnessed it. He says, we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shine in dark place. He's saying, he's saying, all the prophecies that were fulfilled in him, not only were they fulfilled by him, but we saw his supernatural power. We saw him heal. We saw him deliver. We saw him do amazing things. Until the day the dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But we know, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's personal interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. He recognized that, that the words even he was penning here were God's words. Six is the preservation of Scripture. Throughout the intervening 2,000 years since the close of the canon, this is when the last words of the New Testament were written, we, have a reliable, we can have reliable confidence that what we hold in our hands is exactly what was written at the time. Here's why. Sometimes you'll run into people as you talk about the Bible and they say, well, you know, the Bible's been changed. The Bible's been manipulated over time. Somebody made a copy, made a copy, made a copy, made a copy. And, and as people made copies, you know, it would have been easy for King James or some other person to kind of insert or use their, you know, their power to kind of manipulate the text and make them do what you want them to do. And it shows a misunderstanding of, of how it is that we got this Bible. We didn't get this Bible by, by 2,000 years of translations. And then the NASB, somebody sat down and said, okay, let's, let's take the, the new King James or the, the King James version and put it into more modern language. You know, this is not, a, this is not a, 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 a translation from Old English to English. No, no. The people who translated the NASB and, and the NIV and the ESV and the NASV and, and most of those, those translations, they are working in the original language. They are translating from Greek manuscripts, from Hebrew manuscripts. And, and listen, the, the way this, is, this worked is, is really important. We have almost 6,000 ancient manuscripts in Greek, in Koinonia Greek. This so far surpasses any other textual manuscript evidence that we have for anything else from history. The entire works of Plato, we have seven manuscripts from history. Everything we know about Julius Caesar comes from about 10 manuscripts that were dated, the manuscripts we have are dated 900 years after he actually lived. And yet people accept Julius Caesar as a historical figure and, and they believe what was written about him. It's, it's reliable evidence. But the Bible, we have almost 6,000. In fact, if you include the Syriac text, if you include the Aramaic text, if you include the, um, the Latin text, if you include, there's one more. If you include the Coptic text, we have over 25,000 ancient manuscripts of the New Testament. That, that, is so, that is so far beyond anything else we have. It's so reliable. You know how, this, how, how you get this evidence is, is, is if the Apostle Paul writes the book of Ephesians, right? He writes the letter to the Ephesians and he writes down, the first thing the Ephesian church is gonna do when they get it is they're gonna make a copy, right? This is home churches. So they wanna be able to spread the, the, what the Apostle Paul's writing. So they, they, they make a copy and they send it to another home church. And then they make a copy, they send it to another home church. And so the, what, what happens over time is these copies go different places, and one of these copies might go to Carthage in North Africa. One of these copies might go to Baghdad. And one of these copies might go to Rome. 
And, and listen, we today can have more confidence, more sure in the Bible than you could have 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago. In fact, the further away we get, the more confidence we can have. You wouldn't think that, but the reason is because with modern technology, with modern communication, with modern travel, the, the antiquities um, uh, curator for the, the Baghdad Museum can call Rome and say, hey, we have this ancient copy. We should take a look. And he can say, I have an ancient copy and we have one in North Africa. Let's compare them. What happens is you, is you compare them, there's incredible unanimity in what the scriptures teach. And so we can have confidence because God has maintained his scripture. Faithful Christians over the years have stewarded the word of God, many times risking their lives, many times risking their livelihood, many times risking their families in order to preserve this word for us. And Jesus is the one behind it who is preserving it all. He says in 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25, it says, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. It is supernatural, the preservation of scripture that we can have today. The seventh thing is the self-attestation of the Bible. This means that the Bible itself claims that its, its teachings are scripture and they are revealed by God. Jesus would quote and teach from the Old Testament. Jesus believed that the Old Testament was true. The apostle Paul believed he wrote that what he was writing was scripture. The apostle Peter said what, what the apostle Paul is writing is scripture. They make their own claim to authority. This is important because they are saying, we know what we're doing. We believe that this is True, we believe that this is breathed by God. It's not just our ideas, but it's from the Lord. And the eighth and final thing I'm going to give you this morning is that the evidence is the, inter the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. The Chicago Statement on Inerrancy says it like this, the Holy Spirit bears witness to the Scriptures, assuring believers of the truthfulness of God's written word. The Holy Spirit confirms in this, and listen, this is one that most of us know experientially. When you read the Bible and something comes alive to you, something is transformative, you read it and just, maybe you've read it 50 times before, but this time it stands out because the Holy Spirit is using, there is power in this word. Matthew chapter four, Jesus said, uh, and Jesus answered, he said, it is written that man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That one of the evidences is the Holy Spirit living in us is confirming the truth of this word. It is life to us. It's an or it, the, the purpose of the Bible is to nourish us, to strengthen us, to give us life. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, of discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom he, we must give an account. There is power in knowing what the word of God says. You know, so often when we get in these conversations with people or, or somebody's questioning the veracity of scriptures, we kind of shrink back because we think, man, I, you know, maybe I heard in church or I've heard in a, in a class on apologetics. I'm not, I just can't remember. I don't want to formulate it. I just want to say, listen, all that stuff is good. I, 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 I want to know more, and I think we should all want to know more, but the power is in this book. This word is really the power. It's what contains the power. It's alive and active. I love, I love what Charles Spurgeon said about this, this quote. He says, the word of God is like a lion. You do not have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. Listen, as, as we not only read this for ourselves, but as we proclaim it, as we preach it, as we live it out, we can have confidence that there is power in the word of God. It is alive and active. It does not return void, but it goes out and it does its work. So that's the first part. That's what we mean 
when we say we believe the whole Bible is the word of God without error. The second half of our, our statement says, and the only unfailing rule for proper living in every area of life, both personal and public. The Bible gives us the proper way to order our lives, the proper way to live. It tells us what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong. This is important. We do not vote on it. It does not change according to your feelings. We don't decide by opinion polling. We don't make it up as we go. We don't decide whether we like it or not. The truth is ancient. It is established and it is revealed to us. It is given to us by our maker. It was true in the first century. It is true today in the 21st century. It will be true long after we are dead. It doesn't change from culture to culture. It doesn't change from season to season. It doesn't change from person to person. That's why this Bible is just as relevant to an Inuit living in the Arctic as it is to an Aborigine living in Australia as it is to a modern person living in a metropolis like like Tokyo. This word of God spans all of it and it is true for every person. It gives us how to live our lives. Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The Bible is like an illumination of our lives. It tells us how we should go, where we should live, what manner we should live. The Bible reveals the right way to live, what is pleasing to God. And as Christians, our goal is to order our lives, to take it in and say, God, I wanna, I wanna conform myself to your word. I wanna bring your word into my life and have my mind transformed. I wanna think like you. I want to be obedient to your scriptures. I want to honor you by obeying your commandments. And when I fail, I want to, I want to repent. I want to seek forgiveness. I want to be renewed. And then when people fail me, I want to offer them forgiveness. And that's what we mean when we say this is the only unfailing rule for proper living in every area of life, personal. But then we add on there, and public. Listen, we do not simply believe that this word is for us to go home and practice our own private religion in the privacy of our own home or the privacy of our own church. We believe the word cannot be contained like that. The word, it, it, the word explains all of life, and we, this is going to bring us into conflict with people because there's a lot of people who would say, listen, I don't care what you do. I don't care what you believe. I don't care what you do in the privacy of your own home, but you cannot bring your personal religious beliefs into the public sphere. And they'll invoke things like the separation of church and state or religious plurality. I want to just say, you won't find the separation of church and state or religious plurality in this book. Okay? Nine, 95% of the time, people don't even know what they're talking about when they say those things. They don't even know what, we, what, what uh, civically is meant by separation of church and state. What it means is the government shouldn't come in and tell us how to live our lives religiously. It does not mean anything about whether we religious people should express our religiousness in public or in the government. But morality, laws, public policy, it has to be based on something. It has to be based on something. If it's not based on the Bible, then what is it based on? Is it based on your opinion? Is it based on popular choice? Is it based on the democracy? Is it based on cultural norms, evolutionary psychology? You gotta base it somewhere. As for me, I'm gonna put it in the living word. Okay, that's where my, that's the only firm foundation. And as soon as we step back from that, we try to base, we try to, we try to root our morality in any other place, I wanna tell you, we're taking a step back from Orthodox Christianity and we're taking a step towards moral chaos. If, 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 listen, we are on a slippery slope. We are well down the slope at this point in our society. 
that we are calling evil good and good evil. And there, there are no shortage of examples I could give for you, but this last week offered us one that we can talk about this morning. I want to show you a video from this last week on Wednesday, the, city, the Santee City Council meeting. There was a girl who gave testimony. Some of you guys have seen it because it's been kind of going viral online. Girl gave a testimony about her experience at the Santee YMCA. Let's go ahead and watch it. Good evening, council members and residents of Santee behind me. <laughs> My name is Rebecca Phillips and I'm 17 years old. I am not a resident of Santee, but I am employed at a local restaurant, the Omelette Factory, and I work out regularly at the Santee YMCA. Just two weeks ago, after finishing my shift at my job, I went to the gym to swim laps. As I was showering after my workout, I saw a naked male in the women's locker room. I immediately went back into the shower, terrified, and hid behind their flimsy excuse for a curtain until he was gone. I ran into a bathroom stall to change as quickly as I could, organizing my thoughts to share with the people at the front desk. As I did so, I could only think of my five-year-old sister, who I bring to this gym during the summer to, sorry, to enjoy their water slides. This is the YMCA, where hundreds of children spend their summer afternoons in childcare camps. This is the YMCA where my little sister took gymnastics lessons. The locker room was supposed to be her safe haven to gossip with her friends and shower and change. When I asked the YMCA management what their policy was regarding transgenders, they confirmed that the man that I saw was indeed allowed to shower wherever he pleased. As long as you are not a red flag on Megan's Law, the California Sex Offender Registry, a grown male can shower alongside a teenage girl at your YMCA location here in Santee. I was made to feel as though I had done something wrong when I talked to people at the YMCA. Somehow, the indecent exposure of a male to a female minor was an inconvenience to them. Okay. So let me just say a couple things. First off, that's a very upsetting video. Um, but I, I want to say this is not happening somewhere out there, or some you know, story from... Oh, this, is, this is our city. This is our, our part of the San Diego County, our East County. This is our backyard. And um, re really quick, just, just so you know, there's going to be a peaceful rally... Um, at the YMCA on Wednesday at 6 p.m. I want to invite all of you to be there. Neil's going to be there. I'm going to be there. Um, we're going to have some people speaking. We're, we're joining other churches and other organizations to, to let the YMCA know that we don't think this is right. We don't think, we, we're not interested in having businesses that have these kinds of policies that put women and children at risk in, in East San Diego County. And so I want to invite you to come. Like I said, I think, I think the more people, the better. But did, did you notice, did you hear what she said there at the end? That she was made to feel like she was the one who was wrong. You know, it's easy in some of these situations to say, I don't, it's messy, I don't want to get involved, I don't, you know. Um, I just want to say, when we do that, it's so easy to get, it's so easy to just get swept along with everybody else. And, and listen, you might be at a place in your walk with God, you might be at a place in your Christianity where you're mature and you're not really very concerned about yourself going along with the zeitgeist or with what everybody else says. But I want to tell you, there's a lot of people, vulnerable people who are. I was at Youth Venture on, um, on Friday and I was talking to a girl, this, this sweet girl, and, um, and she said, you know, my name is EJ, but, um, but people call me Jake. I just thought, the first thing I thought was, your dad's probably not in your life. Just because I've been doing this a long time, I, I could say that with some reliability. My second thought was, man, thank God for Youth Venture because if we're not going to tell you the truth, then where are you going to hear it? 
There are so many people who need to hear the truth. And, and listen, by being quiet or by just going along, we are complicit in not standing up for righteousness, not standing up for the truth. And I want to tell you this. There is a great reward for people who stand firm on the word of God. God will vindicate his word. This is what it says in Psalm 119, 7 through 10. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. I'll invite the band up here. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. They are sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. I want to make a commitment to you as Foothills Christian Church and just, just reiterate what our, what our statement of faith is, is that we are never going to be embarrassed by the Bible. We are never going to shy away from what the Bible teaches. We're never going to apologize for it. And I want to invite you into this with us because quite, quite truthfully, the opposite is where we're going to stand. We're going to stand on the promises of God. We're going to protect them like a treasure. We're going to study them to show ourselves approved. We're going to savor them because they are a delight to us. And we are going to proclaim them so that others can share in the joy of knowing God too.